you can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome. I got my mojo. To the Mojo Radio Show. But it just won't work on you. <laughs> hey everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks for getting on board the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. If you're a regular, thanks for hitting the download button. Thanks for getting on board the bus. If you're brand new to the show, welcome. Love having you here. Thanks for downloading the show. What do we do? We just talk to people that we find interesting. People who have their mojo working in some aspect of their life. We talk to them, we extract their opinions, their tips, their tools, their, their stuff that we can put into our world to help get our mojo working. And before we start the show, just a bit of a uh, thank you. We, it's been a pretty big ride for us probably since Rocktober. It's really started to hit its stride. And the show's got a very big listing audience around the world now. So although we're Aussies sending it out across the Pacific in the Indian Ocean, Big uh, g'day to all our friends in the United States, big listening audience in the States. Uh, and in fact, Germany's an interesting one. The, the Mojo Radio Show seems to have really hit a spot with the Germans. So uh, all the Germans listening to us, welcome, guys. Welcome to the show. The French, our good friends across the ditch in New Zealand, big listening audience in Christchurch in Auckland. And uh, also got a few over there in England who are listening. So, um, there are people around the world, but a special shout-out to they're our most popular countries. So, uh, g'day, guys. And if you if you are liking what we do and you want to help us here in the show and be of service to us because we do the show for nothing, do us a favour. Go to iTunes and leave us one line. Why that's important, number one, it makes us feel good. But number two is it helps with the ratings so we can get to more people to help people get their mojo working. So it's as simple as that, guys. You go to iTunes, hit ratings and reviews, leave us one line, just throw us a bone. That certainly helps us, doesn't it, mate? It does indeed. And if there's anyone in Germany working for Mercedes-Benz in particular who'd like to share the love, forget the ratings and reviews, just, you know, a CL200 or something like that. That'll do. Hello to all our friends. Oh, as you must interesting point on that. Mm. Because we have no sponsors... Hello to our friends at Corona and uh, Mission <laughs> Corn Chips. But I'm just saying, mm. and this is just, just something, because mm. we know the Mojo Radio Show audience is, is on top of their game. Oh, always. All I'm saying is, if you like Corona, if you like your corn chips, stock up now, because once that wall goes up... <laughs> <laughs> We're in mate, trouble. I'm telling you, we are in trouble. All our friends at Seoul and Dos Equis and... Uh, and Corona, of course, you want to uh, think about that, guys? Well, Donald like Trump is a big listener to the show, so, you know. Oh, Trump, the Trumpinator. The, the Trumpster. Trumpster. Oh, loves the show. It's all I'm saying, that wall started. Once it goes up, there's no telling whether our corn chips from El Paso or our, our beers are going to come over the wall. I'm just saying, the Mojo Radio Show Tunnel. There's a new segment, AP. Because we are the Three Amigos. The Mojo Radio Show. I like this guy. <laughs> I came across Gamax. In fact, I don't even know how I came across Gamax. Well, but it was his one of his videos he posts on YouTube that I saw, and I really liked it because he talks about reinvention and not about just reinventing ourselves, but reinventing our businesses. Why it's important and why status quo right now is so dangerous to us. And I was looking at his stuff, loved it. Went to his website. Then I discovered that he was a 2012 Canadian Speaker of the Year, which is judged by tech. Now, I do a lot of work for tech here in Australia and know that tech is an organisation 
And it's all about CEOs, basically. So if you're the Speaker of the Year, that means the CEOs of Canada voted him the Speaker of the Year. That comes with big raps. He has spoken on the stage with Gene Simmons, and he's also spoken on the stage with Richard Branson. So this guy um, has got a great topic. He obviously knows your stuff because he is out there with the best of the best on stage sharing his secrets. Best-selling author, keynote speaker around the world. There's a lot of travelling. So uh, we are delighted to have Gare Maxwell in the house. Gare, uh, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. All the way from, where have we found you, mate? I'm actually, uh, today, guys, I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, otherwise known as Steel Town, <laughs> otherwise known as the home city of the NFL's Pittsburgh Steelers, who are licking their wounds after a setback uh, last Sunday to the New England Patriots, who are headed to the Super Bowl against Atlanta. Pittsburgh is also uh, the home to the Stanley Cup champions, the Pittsburgh Penguins and baseballs, Pittsburgh Pirates. But uh, I'll tell you, I was in Philadelphia last week, and ever since uh, those trips to Philly and uh, Huntsville, Alabama last week, I've been uh, really, uh, I've had Pittsburgh on the calendar because I knew this is when I was going to get to the uh, uh, talk to you fine folks in the land down under. <laughs> now, our audience would have picked up, mate, you have had a history and a career in media, and now you are a very well-recognised person on the speaking circuit. When people ask you, Gare, what you do, what do you normally say? Hey, Gary, it happened to me last night on the flight coming in, and you know, you, you jump on a plane, complete stranger beside you, and he says, so, so what do you do? I say, honest to goodness, I said, I travel the world and I tell stories. I play my favorite music and CEOs and senior executives just love what I do and they invite me back again and again. And that's what I do for my gig. <laughs> It's a great story to tell. Because we are going to talk reinvention today, I'm going to start the show a little bit differently today with you, Gare, and I'm going to start with a quote from General Dwight D. Eisenhower. In 1952, he said, It is neither a wise man nor a brave man that lies down on the tracks of history to wait for the train of the future to run over him. Why does that statement resonate so much with you, mate? Because it happened to me personally. That's a great question. And, and the, the, the roots of, of where that quote comes from has to do with the fact that, as I told my audience today in Pittsburgh, I am, for some strange reason, and guys, I don't know where it comes from, but I am a World War II buff. And so ever since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated by uh, the Second World War, especially the invasion of Normandy, June 6, 1944. So I'm the, the, the kind of the nerdy kid who got his hands on everything he could find out, uh, read encyclopedias about uh, the Second World War. And, of course, you know, you think of some of the leading figures, uh, Patton, Montgomery, Eisenhower, MacArthur, et cetera, et cetera. So that quote really stuck uh, for me on this subject of reinvention because – uh, the train of the future uh, has run over me, especially when I was in uh, my old career. For 20 years, uh, right out of high school, I was a broadcaster. So I did radio and television. I was uh, a journalist. I was uh, someone who covered things like school board meetings and 
city council meetings and political rallies and murder trials. And I also announced a bunch of hockey games. And, 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 but I could see, at least here in North America, and with the company I was working with in the late 90s, I could see the writing on the wall. But one day, the train of the future did run over me. And it's running over so many of my uh, so friends and colleagues that are still in the media business uh, today. But uh, it ran over me personally. Before you know it, I wound up on the unemployment line. And even though I did see the train sort of coming, no one is ever quite ready for the day. And I mean no one. Anyone listening today to this podcast, this radio show will know. There is nothing that prepares you for the day when they look you in the eye and they tell you, guess what? You're not welcome here anymore. You got 15 minutes to leave the building. You know, this after 16 years with one company. And, and before you know it, within a week, you're, you're broke, you're busted, you're on the unemployment line. And so for me, guys, the story of reinvention and the roots of that quote uh, is, is very personal. And so um, I didn't know it at the time find you when it's happening in, in the middle of the storm. But looking back years later, I realized that was uh, the moment when the seeds of this whole topic and this fascination with this idea of reinvention was born. And it came from, uh, just as the Eisenhower quote would suggest, getting basically run over by the train of the future. Yeah, this is a very interesting topic. And this is a true story. I was making an appointment to see a guy in Brisbane and we'd set it down for two weeks time. We were in the middle of discussions going backwards and forwards about times. And within an hour, I got an email saying, uh, you're going to have to speak to my boss because I've just been sacked. There's been a restructure and he said, I'm out. So what you're saying is absolutely true that it's happening. And this guy had absolutely no idea. He believed that we were going to be meeting in two weeks' time for a coffee. It was actually nothing going on. And suddenly, as you say, he gets a tap on the shoulder, need to see you in my office. When that happens, Gare, with your experience, how does this guy start over? Oh, that's, that's a fantastic question. I've identified certain things that are predictable in this process. And I, and I guess what happened is not only did I use my own personal experience with it, but I did a ton of research. Um, and I, I would sit down and I would have coffee, and I still do to this day, to pe- with people who I would consider successfully reinvented themselves. And, and so for me, um, I love this question because I think it comes down to a couple of things. So if we talk just about your friend, here's the predictable uh, place that that you're going to go to. When something like that happens, because it's a change, because it's such a shock, because especially if it comes when you didn't see it coming, if if it came basically in a blindsided fashion, there's going to be, without question, a period of time where you're basically uh, struggling with it and you're going to have your emotional ups and downs, you're going to get angry, you're going to get depressed, you're going you're gonna to experience all kinds of these negative emotions and every once in a while you're going to feel exhilarated 
and, and, and the promise of a fresh start. And even though you're going to have all kinds of well-meaning people say, this is probably the best thing that could ever happen to you, it sure doesn't feel like it at the moment. However, your friend or whether, and here's the however part, whether it's your friend back in Australia or anyone here in North America, you only have a certain amount of time uh, for you to lick your wounds and get back on your horse. And here's the answer that you're looking for. The answer is, at some point, you've got to recognize you have to be the student all over again. You've been knocked off a 20-year career, a certain perch, uh, whatever you've accomplished. It really doesn't matter. And so the metaphor I use in my forthcoming book and um, the metaphor that I believe in that really paints the picture for our listening audience today is we are no longer, you know, and it doesn't matter whether you got fired or whatever the change is that's inspiring reinvention. It's not about climbing the ladder of success. I think in our minds, uh, even at the subconscious level, we have this idea that we're on this ladder called success and boy, we got to keep climbing the ladder and anything that knocks us off the ladder or anything that makes us want to go back down the ladder is a bad thing. It's a negative thing. We are not taught from the time we left high school or whatever and got into the workforce. We are not taught to go back down the ladder. And yet that is precisely what we have to do if we're at all serious about successful reinvention. Climb down, not up. Go back down the ladder, go all the way back to the bottom, and learn how to be the student again. If you can't do that, if you can't bring yourself or your company or your or your community or whatever you know uh, part of the human experience that you're into, if you can't learn the new lessons that need to be learned, then you're just not going to do very well with this discipline called reinvention. It's not going to happen. When we're starting over as a business or we're faced with hardship that we discussed, we're heading back down the ladder. I've heard you speak about storytelling and the stories we tell ourselves. It seems to me, Gary, that if we go down this train of thought, that we really have to step back and look at the story we're telling ourselves in order to be able to go back down the ladder, then back up the ladder. The stories must be a powerful part in this would you agree with that? Oh, listen, there is no effort at all, uh, or no initiative at all to reinvent that can happen without telling an entirely new story. And we could talk literally, guys, hours about this. And, and so, but the biggest story that has to change is the one you just referenced is the internal dialogue. Because let's face it, the human brain will process, you know, tens of thousands of thoughts per day. Uh, so I've seen some research that says about 80% of them are, self, are, are, are negative and self-defeating. And when something cataclysmic happens, as in the case of the friend you mentioned earlier, well, the internal dialogue can get pretty negative. And so, and so consequently, and of course, it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the story somehow has to change. And it starts from within. And, you know, I think it was Stephen Covey with the seven habits of highly effective people that talked about it at length, how private victories precede public ones. 
when the story starts to change from within. And so in my own case, when it went from getting fired to getting fired up over a new career and new possibilities and a chance to discover new heroes, well, that, in effect, is, is a big part of how I was able to, you know, as they say, successfully reinvent. But let's be real about this, guys. Let's be very real. If you'd have told me back when I was on the unemployment line with zero hope, zero prospects, nothing saved in, in terms of a bank account and no severance package, zero, if you'd have told me that someday you're going to be, uh, let's see, speaking to CEO groups in New York City on Fifth Avenue on the 27th floor of a big building, and these people all run companies that do over $100 million of business a year, if you'd have told me you'd be invited to places like Italy, Mexico, Maui, the United Kingdom to go on speaking tours, and to be interviewed on a great Australian podcast like this one, if you'd have told me back then, <laughs> I never, ever would have believed that that would be possible. I would have wondered seriously about either your the state of your mental faculties or the type of crack cocaine you were smoking. <laughs> but my point is, whether it's you, me, or anyone, Gary, Robo, it, it all starts with the story we tell ourselves. And when we can confront the bitter truth and start to re, but also recognize it for what it is and start to rewrite the narrative, then there's, there's no limit to the, to, to the possibilities that can, that can present themselves because they're all there. Anyone can start from anywhere now. And that's, that's what has me so fired up about this world, about just the possibilities that exist like never before. Even a businessman can become president, right? Well, apparently, exactly, guys, even, a reality television star, okay, um, somehow can make it to the White House. Now, I would never have thought that possible at one point, but it's been done. And, and, and there's so many, but all kidding aside, and, and, and not that we want to dive too deep into, into that um, quagmire, but the technology that we have today and the resources that we have today Fellas, it just means this world, this global village is truly shrinking, not just day by day. It's literally shrinking hour by hour. It's shrinking even as we speak on this podcast. Yeah, if we just camp out on storytelling for a minute, because I'm, I'm really interested in this. Why, why do people believe that their own story is not worth telling? And if somebody agrees with this, how do they dig down to their real authentic story? Like what, what have you learned? What have you seen? What have you discovered? That can give people confidence to know their story is worth telling and then to give them a, a couple of steps to say, here's how you find your real authentic story. Yeah, well, it, it, that's, that's a great question. And, and let, me, um, let me start by saying, my primary um, wheelhouse, as it were, is, is helping companies reinvent their brands. So I spend a lot of time traveling North America and different parts of Europe, hopefully make it to Australia someday, 
And, and so when I say reinvent the brand, I mean, my hypothesis is brand is story. The greatest brands in the world are all story based. But whether it's a brand or it's a person, whether it's a company or an individual, one of the key elements to dig into is what I call the Batman story. And are, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Simon Sinek and his fabulous work called Start With Why and how Simon established the golden circle as a framework, in other words, to figure out deep down why you do what you do. And I'm sure many of your listeners would agree uh, that Start With Why is, is a great piece of, of insight and a great piece of work, but what I discovered is, and, I, and I, true, uh, I truly am a Simon Sinek fan. That being said, I also found some people would get stuck on it. And so what I've done is I've taken it and I've reframed it as the Batman story. And everyone's got their Batman story. And what's the Batman story? Well, Batman's been fighting crime since 1939, and there's been many versions of Batman. Batman's been played by many different characters. It's had gone through innumerable plot changes and, 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 and revisions, and it's always being updated. And However, one thing never changes about Batman. Why does Batman do what he does? And Batman has been fighting crime ever since the young Bruce Wayne, seven years old, saw his parents murdered in cold blood right in front of him. Well, I think that's true for us, too. We all have our own Batman stories. We all have our reasons why we do what we do. And for some of us, those reasons might, you know, have occurred in moments of tragedy or struggle or a great ordeal. But it's, it's like a friend of mine once said, and this is um, a friend of mine, by the way, uh, he's definitely worth checking out as well. You guys would love to have him on the show. His name is Alvin Law. And Alvin is out of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and he was born as a thalidomide baby, and he, he's, no, he has, he's the drummer with no arms. Imagine this, a drummer with no arms. At least the guy in Def Leppard has got one arm. Alvin has none. Okay, and yet Alvin was not only be, not only able to establish himself as a musician, but he's also a professional speaker who travels the world. And and Alvin and I were talking about how everyone, you know, has their own thing that they've had to come to terms with, and no one's trauma, no one's ordeal, is really any better or any worse than anyone else's. We, this is not about the land of comparison. Oh, you've got a much more serious trauma than mine. And I used to think that myself. Oh, my goodness, nothing really bad ever happened to me. I just got sacked once. Big deal. But it was. At the time, it was the biggest deal. And that friend you talked about earlier in Brisbane, that's a huge deal to that guy. So this is all about perspective, this is all about context. But we've all had to deep down at some point dig into the things that a young Bruce Wayne, even though it's fictional, many of us know the story. And we've all got the Batman story somewhere in our past. Typically the seeds of why we do what we do and how we can reconstruct the narrative come from that Batman story because the real story is how you faced it, how you dealt with it, how you overcame it, and how you came to own whatever it is. So my friend Alvin, for example, is a great, is, is a living example. You can look him up on the internet. 
I mean, he's the guy that has looked his, uh, you know, particular thing in the face and not only come to terms with it, but really has triumphed. And so I think everyone has that capability within. That's gold. I think it's gold, brother. There's gold in that there bat cave. <laughs> <laughs> the golden Batmobile. Can I ask you about authenticity? And it's a topic I've been thinking about now for quite a while, and I heard you mention the authenticity paradox. Can you explain that for me? Well, I, I've, I've had my own struggles with that subject, to be honest, Gary. I've, I've really come, I have flip-flopped an awful lot on the subject of authenticity because I think, here's what I mean. I think the word itself has, has become sort of almost a meaningless word. I think it became a buzzword. And even though I'm a big fan of authenticity and even though Brene Brown has, has done some incredible things in her TED Talks about how authenticity and vulnerability are all connected and, you know, I, I, I do think that, that um, as I look forward into 2017, I'm struggling with the word itself, as you can hear me do it right now on this show, because I just find it's, it's lost its meaning. If, if, if everyone aspires to authenticity, which most people, especially in the business community, what do they, they claim to value things like authenticity. They claim to value things like transparency, but those words I'm just finding are showing up in so many places and not supported by truth. And when I see something just not supported by truth and I, I don't see it evident in actions, then I get a little, shall we say, skeptical. And, and, and so, so anyone who claims certain things around the areas of authenticity and transparency is now, is now starting to raise uh, a bit of a flag. I don't know if I'm answering your question, uh, but I know that I've just, like I say, I've, I've, I'm trying to find, uh, especially now here in the, I, you know, I'm a Canadian and here in the United States, we've got this thing going on right now and I travel a lot in the U S but They've got this thing going on now with the, the charges of fake news and alternative facts. And, hey, at some point, I think deep down, we all want, you know, the real stuff with no guff and no fluff. And I don't know how else to say it. So, again, I don't know if I'm answering your own question other than to demonstrate. I, I really I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with authenticity. Do you think authenticity plays a part or let's, uh, let's call it being straight up with each other, uh, telling it as it is. Uh, we mentioned the word being real earlier in the interview. Is that a stepping stone to building a deep connection with each other? Gare, in your mind, with the work you're doing and who you're working with, it seems like we are losing our connection. Is this conversation a way for people to start to build a deeper connection with each other? Yeah, if there is a paradox that exists right now, guys, it would be the technology that we have today. And, and this, is, this is a fine example of what's happening on this program right now. The technology that we have today, there is a paradox in the sense that it's never been easier before to reach an audience with technology, but it is getting harder to connect with people and that's because of technology, because I'm sure in Australia or New Zealand or wherever people are tuning in, 
I'm sure you, you folks are, are, are walking into the restaurants too and seeing people ostensibly gathered at the dinner table to break bread, and yet they've all got their devices and they're all checking their Facebook feeds or their email messages. So it's, it's getting harder and harder to connect. The technology that does connect us is also isolating us from each other, and we tend to get buried in the technology. And, and, and so consequently, I think at some point, the, the pendulum is going to start to swing back the other way, and there will be more people, even millennials, who uh, I think who get criticized far too often because I think they're brilliant. Um, I think even the millennials will start to also crave more uh, human connection and that's one of the things I know that we're kind of on a mission to do here is to help teach, uh, you know, teach companies because we, we just, by nature of the beast, we talk to a lot of CEO groups and senior executive groups. I mean, that's why we're here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania all week. But we're trying to help inspire companies to find a way to speak uh, human to human, H to H in the digital space. And, and, and how do you do that? Well... One of the ways we think is, um, well, for instance, things that we're doing now in terms of the dialogue, but also uh, telling stories and telling them on platforms like YouTube or Facebook video and, and letting people into your world a little bit and, and not be so pretentious and not be so stuffy and, not, and, 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 and to somehow think that, well, that's not proper and that's not professional and all, all those things we've attached certainly here in North America, to what we deem as appropriate or acceptable. And I can assure you that people um, more and more are craving uh, just a little bit of humanity, especially in these uh, business situations that far too often are weighed down by things like data, metrics, SEO, and how is it going to play in front of a freaking focus group? Yeah. I think you, like me, are a fan of P.T. Barnum. And P.T. Barnum was one of the creators of Barnum and Bailey Circus's The Greatest Show on Earth. They are closing after 146 years in business, if they haven't already closed. What can we take? What can we learn from that? What can we take from the fact that an iconic brand that created the audience, created the circus, the greatest, they're closing. What can we take from that? That's a great question, Gary. And I saw that news feed, uh, I think it was a week or two ago, and I I thought, isn't that ironic? The self-proclaimed greatest show on earth, even when you have the greatest show on earth, it doesn't mean that you are impervious and can be protected by the winds of change that are blowing like a tsunami every single day. And I think what happened to uh, Ringling Brothers and, and P.T. Barnum, Barnum and Bailey is really no different than Kodak. It's the same story just being repeated in a different industry. And I was in Rochester, New York back in March of 2015. And Rochester, of course, is the home of Eastman Kodak. And I'm sure many of your uh, listeners would be very well aware of what happened with Kodak and how did a 130-year-old company, basically, how was how it brought to its knees? And typically what you find um, and what my research indicated at Kodak is typically what you'll find at a Barnum & Bailey 
uh, the Ringling Brothers, or what you'll find at some of the major newspaper chains, the chains uh, who are also struggling right now, in that they fail, they fail, they utterly fail to ignore the whispers of of change, and they fail to recognize what business they're really in. Let me use Kodak as an example, and if you let me freestyle a little bit here, guys, I can I can just off the top of my head. Um, Use Kodak, be, yeah. Because here, here's what happened. In 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 the case of Kodak, in 1975, they were monsters. They had about 150,000 employees worldwide. 60,000, 60,000 in Rochester, New York alone. They're making billions of dollars. They had about 85 percent of the camera market. 90 percent of the rolled film market. I mean, they are killing it in every market space. They are the undisputed. They are number one. They've got so much money, guys. They're like Scrooge McDuck swimming in his swimming pool full of cash. Okay? That's Kodak in 1975. And then, and then here's what happens. In 19, you know, in 19, you know, 75 goes on and then it becomes the 80s and into the 90s, well, now the clouds of doom are starting to gather. The storm clouds are gathering, and any audience I ever tell the Kodak story to, I ask what happened, and they say, well, digital technology, you know, is what caused Kodak to collapse. And, and about 80% of people in any audience will say, yeah, it was those outside forces called digital technology, but that's not the truth. The truth is, the only people who killed Kodak was Kodak themselves. And in 1976, a guy by the name of Steve Sasson presented to the Kodak executives the first ever uh, digital camera. It was called um, the paperless camera. Um, and, it was, and, and Steve Sasson was a Kodak employee. And he uh, worked at the Research Apparatus Lab in Rochester, and the first prototype weighed about 10 pounds. It was uh, this, uh, like I say, this paperless or this filmless camera, and it was a pretty crude contraption. And the Kodak executives looked at this thing, and they asked Steve Sasson, well, how long is it going to take before this thing is available as, as a consumer product? And and he kind of based his response on what he knew to be true from Moore's law, which is, you know, the law of ever-increasing change as it relates to integrated circuits on computer chips, et cetera, et cetera. And so he figured, well, given Moore's law and given the rate of technology change, it'll be about 15 to 20 years, which was astonishingly accurate. And the Kodak executives passed. They literally passed on the technology that would have given the company a great second life, a great second act. They would have been the far and away leaders of the new space, and instead they passed. Well, the technology community being what it was, someone else picked up on the idea, and then someone else starts developing it. And before you know, Kodak is playing Johnny Come Lately, but of course, it's way too late. And in 2012, uh, you know, 2011, 2012 is when the red ink is hemorrhaging and they're filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And But Kodak has no one to blame but Kodak itself. And here's why. And here's the message for everyone listening today. Kodak 
failed to realize what business they were really in. They honestly thought they were in the film paper business, the rolled film, the chemical and paper business. They thought they were in the the rolled film business because, see, they couldn't give up that cash cow. They were making so much money by selling rolled film. And, And all those print shops that existed to print, you know, pictures on paper with chemicals, they weren't in the rolled film business at all. They were really in the memory business. You and I and our aunts and uncles and grandparents, we didn't care about the rolled film paper and the chemical paper. No, no, no. We just wanted the memories of those moments. And, and so, consequently, Kodak is a shining example of, of failure to reinvent when you define your whole business and your whole raison d'etre by the actual product or service you sell versus how does it actually impact the customer. And you can also extrapolate and take that to the personal as well. You've got to find a way that there's a bigger purpose that speaks to more than just what you actually do. And you've got to speak to it in a way that actually impacts other people. Right, Stuart, that's gold. I'm just going to rewind just a tad in that story, Gear. You mentioned uh, Moore's Law. If I'm correct, uh, Gordon Moore started Intel back in the mid-60s, 65 or something, and he is credited with this thing called Moore's Law. Could you just quickly give us an understanding of what what that is? Like, what is Moore's Law? Great question, guys, and here's the thing. Gordon Moore was the co-founder of Intel, and he predicted this law as far back as 1965. In other words... Moore predicted that the number of transistors per square inch on integrated circuits would double every 18 to 24 months going forward. See, people wonder, how did we get to this place where computers that used to fill a room, an entire room, are now nowhere near as powerful as the iPhones we have walking around in our pockets? And so it was Moore that predicted this in terms of that's what it is number of transistors per square inch, and they would double and keep doubling. And so it's got this compound effect that went through every uh, technology company for decades. And, and for more than 50 years, he's been proven right. But the consequences and the implications are now true. What happened in technology, I believe, is now what's happening in any form of human human endeavor today, meaning every 18 months, if you're sticking with status quo, if you really don't change your company, you really don't change what you're doing in terms of your career in any, you know, sort of significant fashion, here's what happens. Not only are you getting left behind, now you're getting left behind twice as fast every 18 to 24 months. And these are implications that need to be taken seriously. I believe reinvention has become the number one essential, you know, just to play the game, essential personal and professional development skill of this era. In other words, the ability, capacity, and willingness to remain relevant in rapidly changing times. And relevance is the key. 
Make no mistake. Kodak lost because they became irrelevant. Newspapers are struggling because they became irrelevant, but the writing was on the wall long before it happened. And so Moore's law is just accelerating to a great degree what is inevitable when we don't pay attention to what's going on around us. Okay, you just mentioned status quo. What's what's the new cost of status quo? If a company, business, charity is stuck in status quo, What's that going to cost them? Well, they're going to they're going to be out of business. They're 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 going to be they're going to be begging for handouts. They're going to be begging for survival. I mean, right now we've got a, a story of this, um, and it's tragic, and it's happening in uh, Toronto, Ontario, with one of the country's biggest newspapers, the Toronto Star, which has already endured hundreds of layoffs, and they've lost tens of millions of dollars and they're literally spinning in circles. We've got major department store chains like Sears going through the same thing. It's like a new CEO every six months. And I think to, to really understand the new cost of status quo is to go back in time. As you can, as you guys can already figure out, I'm a big fan of history and I really do believe if we want to understand the lessons of the future, they're all buried in the past. And so I thought one of the greatest predictors of of what this era was going to be like came from a movie, of all things, released in 1991. It starred Danny DeVito, and it was called Other People's Money. And Danny DeVito played a character called Larry the Liquidator, who would come in and buy up... Yeah, Larry the Liquidator. He would come up and buy up struggling companies and sell off their parts... And, 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 and he would profit and, and move on. And there's this unforgettable scene in 1991 that is extremely relevant to this day, which is he's, uh, he's at the shareholders meeting and he's talking about, you know, this fixed, I mean, sure, it's a fictional company, New England Wire and Cable, and he's talking about why it needs to close down. Because to him, it was no different than the last of the buggy whip companies. When, when the automobile from Henry Ford in Detroit, Michigan, came rolling off the assembly lines, it put, believe it or not, fellas, it put a lot of buggy whip companies out of business. And as Larry the Liquidator said in that movie, he says, I bet the last company that closed, that last buggy whip company, was the best damn buggy whip company there ever was. But that's the worst place to be to be number one when your market is shrinking down the tubes. Boy, anyone listening today, if you really are curious about what's coming or what's happening around you, other people's money spells it out. And that goes back, what, more than 30 years now? And so I think this is, these are the little things that we have to be cognizant of. And, and we have to recognize, well, if, if this is what's happened, well, where, where's it all going? And I don't know, guys, that enough people are asking, where is it all going? Who are the thought leaders? Who are the people like the Elon Musks? Who are the people like Jeff Bezos? Who are the people like Gary Vaynerchuk, for instance, in the world of social media, or Casey Neistat, that are, that are really pushing agendas that have future written all over them? And I was in, I don't mind telling you, I was in Detroit, Michigan on a speaking tour a few months ago, and I had a little bit of time off, and I went over to the, it's the Henry Ford Museum. 
And just wandering around the Henry Ford Museum, you could see it. It was, it was unmistakable. You could see that 100 years ago, Detroit, Michigan was Silicon Valley. That's what it was. And so the same forces of change that hit Detroit and eventually the entire world are no different than the same forces of change happening today in Northern California and reverberating throughout the planet. But go back in time and see what happened. And how do you think? How do you think for a second? People who ran cotton mills, people who ran big farms with horses and plows would have reacted to those Model Ts. They wouldn't have reacted any differently than people react today to things like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and all the other things that are coming out today and Amazon now getting into retail. It would have been the same dynamics, only now it's happening at a much faster pace. But relatively speaking, it would have been just as fast back then if, if your whole life depended on waking up at 4, you know, 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning to go milk the cows and plow the fields. Yeah, i I got to say, I'm, I'm loving this interview, mate, and I'm conscious of your time. I just want to ask a couple of quick questions of you. In order for us to get understanding of how you operate and how you actually go about doing what you do to put these thoughts in a coherent manner that can help us. I'm curious, who who or what was a lesson you recall that had the biggest impact on Gare as a man? That's a great question. Who or what? I would say... Um, in this, I'm going to share this with you, fellas. Um, I don't think that anyone has ever asked me that question before, and I love it when someone asks a question that I hadn't really thought of uh, or, or given any thought to. And so instinctively, I know personally and professionally, um, I, you know, there's no other way to describe it. I literally uh, struck gold when I met a guy in 2002 who was in the back of the room, I was doing this speaking event at a little chamber of commerce mixer. I'm sure you guys have chamber of commerce functions uh, back in the land down under. And I was doing this thing and I was just getting started in the, in the speaking business and the consulting business, whatever label you want to put on it. And, and this gentleman was in the back of the room that day and he hung around 60 people left, but he hung around just to talk and he introduced himself. He was very quiet very soft-spoken and um, a very nice gentleman. And he introduced himself and I didn't know it then how much my life would change because of this one guy. He, he ran a, a small mom and pop family business, uh, him and his wife. They had about five other people, maybe six working with them. Uh, they sold about 10 to 12 units per month. They were doing about 1.5-ish, 1.8-ish million in annual revenue. And there was really nothing, you know, that made their product any different than anybody else. So you've got to picture this, guys, in your imaginations. Interchangeable commodity, um, all priced about the same. And But he was sincerely interested in creating substantial differentiation. Those weren't the words we used back then in 2002, but in no way did he want to be, did he ever want to be painted 
with the same brush as the rest of his competitors, but he couldn't figure out how to do it. And so the long story short is Jim Gilbert was the one guy that really in so many ways, both personally and professionally, uh, not only accelerated my own reinvention, but showed me um, and introduced me to a lab where we could actually experiment. And Jim and I did a lot of experimenting for uh, uh, quite a few years. And, and we're still experimenting actually to this day. And we're the best of friends. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with the story, but here's the story, uh, short version on the podcast. In September of 2006, Jim Gilbert, who's in a category that many find, shall we say, unsavory in the United Kingdom. They call these people dodgy. But, and as I said today in Pittsburgh, it's probably the worst business category in the world if you were ever to think about how you could actually make it respectable, make it attractive, make it a brand that would inspire confidence and trust and all those things that great brands do. And that's the story behind uh, what became Jim Gilbert's Wheels and Deals Canada's Huggable Car Dealer. Yes, he's a used car dealer. That's what he is. But it's not like any other used car dealer you've ever seen. And so when you walk in to Canada's Huggable Car Dealer, you'll see it's wall-to-wall teddy bears. He's got the merry-go-round out there for the kids. He's got the popcorn. He's, he's even written a children's book. He's got a nature trail for your dog. He's got over 500 things that he does to make the business huggable. So it started with changing the story, which was significant when he became the huggable car dealer. But more importantly, it became not only discovering that story, but actually telling it and actually living it. And so that business um, has gone from, so, and again, in your imagination, here we are basically on radio theater of the mind. If Walt Disney himself was to imagine what a used car lot would look like, this would be it. And so what you have here is a company where, uh, you know, people basically go out of their way uh, to not only apply for jobs, they've got resumes that they can't get to, and you've got now 33 people working at this location, and they sell well over 100 cars a month. They're the undisputed number one, not only in their city and province, but for four Atlantic Canadian provinces, and that business will hit $40 million in revenue this year. We've seen like 20x growth. Yeah, and, and so when we talk about our theories and ideas, of successful reinvention, successful rebranding, whatever you want to call it, and the power of how a great story and a great narrative can really change and impact, um, you know, an enterprise or an individual. Uh, We've got exactly 10 months, sorry, 10 years and five months of market evidence as to why that happens. And so now we're entering into the next phase And this, I think, in some respects, answers your earlier question. We've just uh, created what's called HuggableUniversity.com. So HuggableUniversity.com is the online, the brand new online uh, teaching program where Jim Gilbert and I will do monthly online videos for our subscribers. There will be free downloads uh, for the workbooks. 
and we will have these monthly classes, about 35 to 45 minute video based lessons, very practical application, a small subscription fee, uh, gets people in the door. They can pre-register right now at huggableuniversity.com. And the first class, this might surprise you, maybe you won't, but the first class will be launched, of course, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, <laughs> 2017. Uh, you're a marketer. Well, and, and the truth be known, he's, he's the real deal because you'll appreciate this, guys. On the day we met, I found out that Jim Gilbert and he started with the small corner lot. He's the classic story of the guy from nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, Canada, who's basically become world famous, written about in five business books. But when I met him, he was actually sending out, because he didn't have a lot of money, he was sending out handwritten birthday notes to his customers. So just picture it. Robo shows up to buy a used car. Well, how does Jim Gilbert know? Robo's birthday, for example. Well, on the finance application, and, and Jim would collect all these birth dates and, and, and put them into a file. Well, today, there's over 14,000 members of his birthday club. 14,000 people are getting birthday gifts. Even if they've moved way out of province, they're still getting a gift uh, on their birthday from the huggable car dealer because everyone... And, and this is, these are universal principles that can apply to any business. Anyone, you know, people have got, if you're any good at what you do, you've got a great story inside you. And Jim and Donna, his wife, they're, they're fantastic people. They've been just community ambassadors from day one. They're always willing to help out great causes. They're those people. They just want to make people feel good. They're not in the car business. See, they're not in the used car business. They're in the making people feel good business. And that's, that is much bigger and much more meaningful than the used cars. Consequently, they've positioned themselves very well for the future. And it wouldn't matter what they touch now. If they wanted to, that, that brand and that story can, can be migrated over to any number of platforms. And so those are the easiest people you'll find on Facebook. It, you guys can look it up, of course, and we can, you know, we can all connect on Facebook as well. I'm the easiest guy to find on the Internet. There's only one of me from what I can tell all over the world. Gare, you're on the air with Gare. We used to have hair, Gare, G-A-I-R, com. okay? And so I don't need SEO or any artificial sweeteners to, to help spread that. But, but I'm just saying, guys, um, Jim Gilbert, to me, was very meaningful because he was the shining example of how you could discover your own truth and actually live it in business. And so I've had the good fortune to have a front row seat uh, to see the guy and, and, and be a part of that success story, to see it come from, like I say, the worst category in the world to something that's become not only highly respected, but, um, and has generated opportunity for all kinds of people in his city, but it's clearly, um, set himself apart. In other words, um, he's become the Apple or the Ferrari or the Harley Davidson or the Jack Daniels or the Nike of his particular category. And I know I, speak with a lot of small business owners and medium-sized business owners, and they find it incredibly inspiring that someone could actually uh, pull something like this off and do it um, 
and basically beat the big boys at their own game and win. It has some ugly connotations, though, doesn't it? Because you wouldn't really want the huggable garbage collector or the huggable builder. Well, it's a great point, and this is what I teach with my CEO and senior executive groups. The, the whole huggable car dealer is the poetic extension of a truth that was already there, but the point is this. It's an original story, and this is what the problem is with marketing today. So much marketing, and I have zero marketing background, but so much marketing today is just tempted to, well, let's cut and paste that. Oh, that gimmick worked there. Let's make that gimmick work over here. Well, no, it's not a gimmick to begin with, number one. Number two, they couldn't pull that off if they weren't actually those people. And, and so the, the hard part of the work is to find your own story. It's to be the musician like Lennon and McCartney or Jagger and Richard. Write your own songs. They wrote their own songs. This is, what's pro- this is the problem in the music business today. No one's writing their own songs. Find your own truth. Stand in it. Find the poetry that supports it. And then live it. And see what happens. It's certainly working. Whether it's a, uh, uh, like I say, a small town used car dealer like Jim Gilbert, or it's working for guys on online like Gary, uh, like Gary Vaynerchuk or Casey Neistat. The, you know, it, it still comes down to the essential elements of finding your own truth, discovering your own story, and then not being afraid to actually tell it and live it. More gold, Gary. Yeah, we quite often quote. Bruce Lee, the famous movie star and martial artist. And he had a saying that said, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials. What's something that you have hacked away at, an unessential you've gotten rid of in the last 12 months that's had a profound impact on you and your performance? Yes, there is one thing. I can spell it with five letters, D-R. AMA. No drama. This is a drama-free zone. And without getting into any specifics, I know the human condition and the human experience more than ever, there is drama everywhere, whether it's from family, whether it's from inside companies. It will rear its ugly head in so many ways. And so I would say, especially the last several years, I have somehow managed to figure out a way to remove myself from any and all drama. And because I don't spend a lot of time in drama type situations, would you believe a lot more gets done, we're a lot more productive, and we can move certain initiatives forward without getting tied up in people's drama. Your dad was a successful sportsman, yeah. And I'm just curious, just to to finish up the interview, I'm curious, you obviously admired your dad. When you think back to your growing up, your maturing to the person you are today, what's the greatest lesson you took from your dad? One word, composure. Dad was a pro golfer. So I'm the son of a pro golfer who was born seven minutes from the first tee at St. Andrews, Scotland. I'm not that good a golfer. I will struggle to break 100. I played golf with Dad last summer. He's 77 years old. He shot 75. And he, and he bogeyed three of the par threes. To, otherwise, he would have been even par 72. Okay? But my dad on the golf course, in his element, is the picture of composure. Nothing rattles him. And I wish... You know, we all sometimes wish we had the do-over. I wish I had paid more attention to the lessons Dad quietly taught. He's not particularly expressive. 
He's not vocal. He's very, he's, he's quiet gentleman. And in fact, gentleman personifies my dad. And, and so he's a bit of the introvert, but on the golf course, he just, you would never ever hear uh, any, anything like, you know, cursing or you'd never see any clubs thrown. You'd never see those outward expressions of anger ever. And so I realized, um, you know, and like I said, I, I wish I'd figured it out earlier that in his own quiet way, he was teaching life lessons on the golf course. And I honestly wish I'd just been tuned into it sooner. And so as I get older, I find myself in, in situations where it's like, well, how would, how would this translate into a situation on the links? Um, because that's, that's the role model to watch. I think, I think in a lot of ways, golf is, is very reflective and it's a great metaphor for life and business because it is played, um, you know, as a solo act. The, 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 the golfer can't blame anyone else. There's no finger pointing. There can't be any drama because you can't blame the referee or the opponent or the conditions because it's, a, it's truly the level playing field. And you were the one who hit the shot in the first place that went into the woods. So it's on you always. And so... I mean, there's, I could, I could talk at length about the different, you know, lessons uh, that are applicable from golf, the, the ability to, uh, you know, somehow compete in the face of adverse conditions when the weather changes, for example, or, or they change the pin placements, or you have to move from course to course, or the fact is you only get rewarded, you know, in, in professional golf, if you don't perform, well, you don't get compensated. You know, if you don't make the cut, you don't get paid. And I don't have a problem with that. I understand that. And it's so golf, you know, in a lot of ways is about bringing your very best to the table, not what someone else can do. It's about bringing your very best to the table. And only, you know, deep down how well you played and whether or not you played with honor. And that, I think that's one of the biggest lessons that's, that's kind of getting lost a little bit today. Can you play with honor? Can you play with dignity? Can you play with class? So if I can be even half of what my dad personified for me, um, then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be content and I'll live with that. Yeah, the thing I admire about people like you that we get to interview is it's obvious you put a lot of thought and contemplation and reflection into your work. And Cal Newport wrote a book called Deep Work, which is one of my favourite books of the last couple of years, which talked about taking time to think about something with no distractions, no noise, no nothing, and really dig deep into it as opposed to just getting stuff done. Do you have a ritual around your deep thinking time, your contemplation? Is there a particular ritual you go through to contemplate the stuff that we've talked about for the last hour on the show? Believe it or not, there is no specific ritual, but some of the best moments come walking and, and taking the two Cocker Spaniels named Theodore and Sophie out for their run or out for their time in the park when they can chase the ball and I can be free of all the electronics. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great reader and I still love to read, love to research. I, I love to listen, for example, to things like TED Talks and, and other things. But in terms of being alone and creating um, original ideas and being away from the distractions, believe it or not, it's the two Cocker Spaniels that provide <laughs> the greatest 
um, resource for that. If, if I can get out with the dogs, uh, I'm, I, which is hard to do, of course, when you're on the road, you can't do it. But, um, and I, I know that that sounds a little, you know, uh, shall we say a little unconventional, but it's true. I mean, I, I, I can vividly recall about almost three and a half, four years ago now, taking the dogs to the dog park and, and, and really there was nobody else there. And when you're, uh, and here's the thing, when you're alone with the two Cocker Spaniels and there's no other people around at the dog park, you can actually talk out loud and not, and, and not have anyone look at you like you're an idiot. And so I'll, you know, for me, that was a pretty big day because I had hired a coach and I was, I was, so I was, and I'll tell you the quick story. I was afraid. There was a point where I was afraid I was getting pigeonholed and typecast as a branding guy and a marketing guy. And I didn't want that to happen. I just thought that, that I was starting to feel a little artistically confined as it were. And even though I enjoyed the work, I just didn't want to be painted with that one brush. And so I remember, you know, I hired a coach, um, and, and, I mean, the coach, you know, provided some, so a, a little bit of direction and certainly some pushing, but I, I didn't get the answer until that one day. And it was probably one of the greatest days ever of, 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 of the type of question you're asking, where do you get the ideas from? And, and what happened was I took the dogs there and it was just me and them. And I remember getting to that place where sometimes we all get to just so frustrated. I can't figure this out. What am I supposed to do? What do I, and then it was like, okay, wait a second. And then I really got talking. What is the one thing you know? What is the one thing you know that you never read about in a book? What is the one thing you know to be true that you never heard from anyone else? You never saw it in someone else's speech or anything like that. And, you know, yes, there might've been a few expletives to, to go along with that, that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that narrative, but the one thing, you know, and then like, just like that, the word reinvention popped into my head. And I think it was cause I was in that quiet place and there was no distractions. And more I thought about it, I thought reinvention. And then I realized, wait a second, I did that in May of 1999. And I went back in my memory to that time on the unemployment line. And then I started to think about, well, I bet other people have done this. I, I started to think, I bet other companies have done this. I bet some have done it and some have failed. Why? And what are, could there be common patterns? And so I got fascinated by the topic um, because of that trip to the dog park. And so, a lot, yeah, a lot of my best ideas and, and clear-headed thinking uh, come from time with them. And also uh, with Dana. She's my partner in life and she's my best friend. And she she's... Um, she's responsible so much for the, the strategy, especially the online strategy of our business. And, and, and she's a, a brilliant thinker in her own right. So we have very spirited, uh, not only debates and conversations, but quite often, um, well, I mean, we had a conversation earlier today where in, in many ways, you might say we, we felt a little bit like songwriters, like uh, she's Bono and I'm the edge. and We're just riffing on some, some, some new numbers that just might make it onto a, a forthcoming album. So I've, I've, I've got the best of both worlds there uh, in terms of uh, Dana and, 
and, and, and Theodore and Sophie. So you've been doing your research on Gary there. As soon as you mention you two, Gary's out of the chair and up and moving around the room. Well, you know, there's no denying that uh, Bono, The Edge, uh, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. have been known to um, come up with a good number every once in a while. And I know a lot of people in North America are looking forward to their 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree. We actually, uh, as fate would have it, we saw them in Turin, Italy uh, on the 360 tour and uh, again in my old hometown of Moncton, New Brunswick. So we saw the complete 360 turn, as it were. And uh, I think you too... Um, you know, I think for a, for a better part of their career, they were able to successfully reinvent, certainly over a long enough period of time. And if they, hey, right now, if they want to rest on their laurels a little bit and, and, and ride the, 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 the legacy of their catalog in terms of the Joshua Tree, more power to them because a lot of people want, still want to enjoy that music and enjoy that experience and I don't have a problem with that. I think you nailed it on the head there though. If you want to talk about people who have reinvented themselves in the music industry, you too would have to be streets ahead of, well, anyone else really. I mean, the Rolling Stones probably not far behind, but geez, the, if you talk about you too, there's just no comparison in, in terms of bands who have reinvented their image over the years. Maybe Madonna would be another one. Yeah, I think the music industry is great inspiration. I'm not a musician and uh, I, I uh, don't play any instruments. And I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but I am fascinated by that industry. I always have been. And I think there are some great examples. I think certainly the late David Bowie. I think Queen was a... A, a band that really reinvented itself many times over uh, very successfully. Uh, U2 is certainly in that. How about the Beatles? I mean, the Beatles, let's face it, when they came out, they were, you know, they were knocking off some old Chuck Berry tunes and, and, and they came out with, uh, you know, s- some hits that, that were very similar sounding and can't buy me love. And I want to hold your hand and she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, the Beatles, you know, reinvented to bring us things like Sgt. Pepper and the Magical Mystery Tour and, and Let It Be and some of the, you know, the Hey Judes and, 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 and things, I think, with a little more depth. And, and so I think the longevity and, uh, and the appeal of the Beatles and their, uh, the appreciation of their music speaks also to um, the way Lennon and McCartney and, and, and Harrison and Starr were able to, to reinvent in that incredible... 10-year period or so, that decade or 15 years they were together, in a way that, let's say, the Dave Clark Five never did. You know, what separate... Because let's face it, the Dave Clark Five came out at around the same time. But the Beatles legacy, and and as you mentioned, the Rolling Stones, um, certainly um, much more in terms of a body of work uh, Bob Dylan, we can't, and this conversation can't exist without Bob Dylan, who's reinvented himself many times over. Gerd, this has been a fantastic interview, mate. We we so appreciate your time. It's been wall-to-wall gold. If there are people listening, and we do have a, a great listening audience in the States and through the UK, as well as back home here in Australia and New Zealand and so on, where where would you send people to find out more about you? Well, the website's the obvious starting place. It's garemaxwell.com, G-A-I-R, garemaxwell.com. Uh, and um, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, we've got uh, this whole new program launching uh, called huggableuniversity.com that we're making available to people all over the world. Uh, who are really interested in accelerating and differentiating their 
marketing and their brand without spending a fortune on advertising. And uh, we've also launched something new um, for new and aspiring professional speakers. It's called the Antarctic Method. Uh, a great friend of mine out of San Diego, California, his name is Antarctic Mike Pierce. And uh, Mike went to Antarctica. He's an endurance athlete, and he went to Antarctica a uh, number of years ago because he's fascinated by the historical lessons of great Antarctic expeditions, such as the one with Sir Ernest Shackleton back in 1914 when they get stranded and their ice and the, and the polar ice crushed their ship, uh, the endurance, and they spent 26 months stranded. But everyone, the entire crew made it back to England, and it was a great story of, of leadership and teamwork and survival, one of the greatest of all time. And so Mike actually went to Antarctica just so he could walk in the footsteps of his heroes. And he, he ran a marathon and an ultra marathon, and he's built an entire career based on the lessons of Antarctic history. So together, he and I have created this program for new and aspiring speakers. So it's called the AntarcticMethod.com. People can check that out. And like I said earlier, um, GareMaxwell.com is where you can uh, also subscribe to the Reinvention Chronicles. I think that's how we found each other is that I post original content every week on the subject of reinvention. And so uh, a lot of the content that I post is actually video-based because I believe now more than ever um, that video is a, a great way to put the human face in the digital space. And so consequently, it's it's easy. Just put in your name, email address, and, and we can, uh, you know, uh, update you with uh, stories of reinvention, uh, whether they're at home back in home base, London, Ontario, or here on the road in beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, folks, you've been on the air with Gare. I love that, mate. That's a, <laughs> that's, that's a cracker. Um, thank you, mate, for your time. It's just been an absolute treat to connect with you, to hear you share, give us your philosophies. And uh, there's there's actually, it, it's, it's easy to see why you're so requested on the speaking circuit over there, mate. So um, thank you so much for your time. Hey, guys, the pleasure is all mine. And, and uh, hopefully someday there will be a chance to... Uh, you know, meet in person. Uh, if we ever are invited and have the opportunity to travel the land, the, the land down under and, and bring the thunder down under, man, that would be just uh, uh, unbelievable. Uh, I've heard so many great things uh, from some friends uh, who've been to places like Australia and New Zealand. And uh, I mean, who knows? Stranger things have happened. And uh, the good Lord willing, uh, you know, that just might happen someday down the road. Yeah, forget this American football, mate. We'll take you to some real football. You know, no shoulder pads, no helmets, just two guys slamming into each other. The way the game was supposed to be played. Australian rules all the way, brother. Absolutely. This is a test of the Mojo Broadcast System. The Mojo Radio Show. Well, g'day, Robo. We really have to teach these Americans how to pronounce my name, right? Oh, no, that's so good. That's going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to ring in the boys in the rugby club. <laughs> hey, Robo, are you going to pack down this scrum or are you going to sit there and peel oranges? <laughs> Robo, the Robocop. Tell you what, he knows his stuff, though. He was awesome. Absolutely awesome. And we know that was a bit of long form, guys, but we, uh, we were enjoying it so much we thought we would let it go. <laughs> For our international guest of the Mojo Radio Show, it is cricket season here in Australia and we have been glued to our TV screens 
watching the cricket in all forms across the summer. But uh, cricket on this show has different connotations, Robbo. It does. We're talking about the chirping type. It all started a while back. We were talking to Diane McGrath, who could possibly be one of the first people to live on Mars. And she was talking about uh, them taking crickets with them to eat. And Oh, she I, loves the bugs. She does love her bugs. And I mentioned that I tried crickets as well on a visit to Thailand once um, and actually enjoyed them. So um, that piqued our interest and it's, it's, it's raised its head a few times since then in a couple of interviews, hasn't it? Well, more recently, the last couple of weeks, Pip Taylor, who is a former professional athlete, who was a triathlete and now very successful sort of, I guess, Masters competitor and long-distance runner. Pip's big on a bugs. She loves the crickets. And consequently, we got very interested in this. We wanted to know more because it is something that we don't really have a lot of knowledge on yet. However, it seems to have a head of steam at the moment where we could soon be seeing a lot more cricket protein in our meals, our smoothies, as an additive to salads and so on. So we contacted Grillo Protein, who the guys have all raved about, and we've got Lucas on the phone to give us the insight on the cricket. Uh, Lucas, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Gary and Robo. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. It's delicious to talk to you. Now, (laughs) we... We've caught you in Byron Bay. That's where you're based, right? Yes, we are based in Byron Bay. And the company name is Grillo Protein. Give us a, an executive summary, a snapshot of what does Grillo Protein do? Grillo Protein, it's um, a complete protein which has all the essential amino acids and it's a um, uh, much more sustainable alternative for a protein source. So basically, we we adding into every single recipe that we try at home, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and uh, it it supports um, our lifestyle, our active lifestyle. When uh, when I say that, I mean um, with our uh, training, running, martial arts, surfing, just everything really. Wow, a little bit of everything. So when you say it's a protein with all the essential amino acids in it, what makes up a Grillo protein? Like, what is it? It's basically whole crickets grounded into a fine powder, and that's it. There's nothing added to it. So let me get this right. So you, you, you take a cricket, you basically dry it, and then grind it into a powder. Is that is that kind of the formula? Yeah, that, that's kind of the formula, actually. <laughs> We the the farm where we're getting our crickets from. It's um, the biggest uh, cricket farm in the world. It's called Antomo Farms, and it's uh, based in uh, Canada. <laughs> Canadian crickets and get, Canadian crickets. And guess what? It's the only organic cricket farm in uh, the world, which which is a bonus for us. Gary, there you go. Get rid of the beef, mate. <laughs> Just run this for us, mate. Tell us. How, how does someone farm organic crickets? Let's paint that picture for me. It's basically a huge uh, warehouse where, where they have um, all these big combs where they, the crickets free range and they just <laughs> run around. <laughs> the free range is very important these days. <laughs> uh, and uh, basically they, they normally have a um, 60 to a day life cycle. And at the end of their life cycle, they hibernate and they die. So what the, the guys do in Canada, when they're getting closer to the end of their life, they start to lower the temperatures in the cricket farm. 
and uh, stimulate then the crickets to hibernate. And uh, once they die from the cold, they wash them and they grind them. And that's it. So just tell me, what's the science behind the, the cricket powder? You've talked about it being a complete protein source. And I love that idea. You've talked about the brand. Is there's a branch chain immediate amino acids you're getting from these? Is that is that where the protein is coming from? Yeah, the, the, the cricket powder, um, well, the complete protein, it, it's only found in um, animal protein source. So if you're eating a broccoli or a mushroom, you will find some protein, but you won't, will not have all the essential amino acids in a vegetable, for example. You can only find that into animal protein like cow or, or or chicken or fish and crickets now so they do have all the essential amino acids on them besides having all the iron fiber b12 calcium it's fascinating will a vegan eat crickets it's a very interesting question we did uh, especially in byron bay there are vegans everywhere in here and <laughs> Find the meat eater. We we are we we are pretty much vegan ourselves. We we have a plant based diet. We don't eat any meat or dairy. We do have a bit of fish sometimes, but our New Year resolution is to don't eat any more fish as well. And um, some of the vegans they they accepted because of because of the fact that it's such a sustainable protein, but a few of them is still, um, how can I say, worried if the crickets uh, suffer or not when they when they die. We'll just ask the crickets. Yes, that's it. <laughs> but you know, there are, there are uh, several, several studies on crickets, and um, uh, there is no proof that they actually feel any pain. At this stage, we just run with that. Based on this whole vegan thing, what's the public perception been to eating crickets or bugs? Like, has that been a challenge? It's been a huge challenge. We're having a lot more acceptance, between, believe it or not, from women. Women uh, tend to be more flexible just because I, I believe they want to be healthier than men. Not sure. But... Um, like I said, you know, the, 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 it all depends on, on why the person is, is choose to be vegan. Most of them, they want to be vegan because of um, the, the animal being not well treated and the way they killed. Perhaps like, a lot of the vegans, they actually not that healthy. They eat a lot of uh, processed food out of the can or, or um, breads that have flowers that are not that healthy so it's 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 very hard to determine if if the vegans will or n- not eat the crickets but we're doing our best to inspire them can be sure of that what's it taste like so robo has had some up in asia uh however yeah. i haven't so i've got no clue as to what this tastes like what would you what would you compare it to yeah well um the taste it's kind of a nutty taste it almost tastes like almonds and a few people say that it tastes like popcorn so it's it's it yeah it's kind of uh you know like any superfood in the market these days a maca powder or um lucuma there's lots of lots of things in the market the moment is they powered with nutrients but they haven't actually 
funny taste. And you know, in the end of the day, it, it's not exactly about the taste, but about the, the benefits that we're getting from these crickets and, and and the impact that they are causing into the environment. So, guys, we could start a whole new product. You know how KFC have got their popcorn chicken. We could have yeah. we could we could have popcorn crickets. We definitely could. Hopefully, we will. Yeah, shopping centres, the country over. Well, I've got I've got stacks to contribute, and they're uh, I guess they're grass fed. <laughs> I get grass fed crickets here by the thousands on my place. But um, that's an interesting question, Robbo. So, when someone buys Grillo protein from you, are they buying it as a powder, or are they buying it as like a crunchy popcorny thing? They buy it as a powder. So we we just yeah we just get the the ground crickets from Canada and uh, we do have a plain cricket package, but we also do two different mixes with the super superfoods, and uh, there is a cacao mix and also a green superfood mix, which I did send uh, this week for both of you. You will both get a good run on all the the products that we have, and there's also lots of samples I send so you guys can give it away to other interesting people that you believe will get intrigued with the cricket story. I, I got my um, my Saturday afternoon drinking buddies and none of them believe me. So I'm looking forward to um, sprinkling some over their chips at the pub on Saturday <laughs> or something like that. How would somebody use it? I, I'm actually quite fascinated. And the reason I'm fascinated by this, Lucas, is we um, I have been listening to a lot of podcasts over the last four to five years and I first came across cricket's in a product called Chirps, which is a corn chip type of thing made from crickets. And then I heard about cricket bars and I heard a lot of the science behind it. So I've been fascinated. And then Robbo and I spoke to a girl who is hoping to be the first person to go and live on Mars and set up uh, a colony on Mars. She spoke glowingly about crickets and bugs. So we got very interested in this. So I'm, I'm super keen to, to try it. How do I use yeah. it? Um, you know, it's, it's actually funny that you, you're saying that about the girl that it's going to live on Mars because I was having a look at the, your website uh, last night and, and preparing myself for now. And um, I just found out that Diane, Diane McGrath is the lady that is going up yeah. to Mars. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I, I was actually very intrigued and I thought, you know what, crickets would be possibly the, the most sustainable option for them in Mars if they could take them in the in the in the ship. That's such a cool <laughs> idea. Yeah. So not only the first humid on Mars, we could have the first cricket on Mars. Exactly. Just sustainable lifestyle. So there's a question. Is there <laughs> is it a certain type of cricket or is it any cricket? There is a certain top type of uh crickets. Uh we came across um a species called Asheta domesticus which from what I heard, it tends to be more suitable to, to disease. And that's why the farm that we're not buying from, that we are buying from, they're not using them. They're using another one that is called um, Grillo's Sigillatus, which they say it's a, a much easier species to, to breed and to control. You, you, you see that a lot of the crickets that are coming from Thailand are the one that is the Asheta domesticus, which they probably reproduce faster, but they, they tend to, to die as well. Are they the ones you buy in the markets, like the, the little 
smaller crickets? Like I, I had a bag of them and was just walking around the markets in Bangkok eating them. Would they be the ones that we're talking about? Yeah, the shitters. They, they will be the ones, just little ones. What was that, Gary? The shitter to Marcus. <laughs> Lucas, <laughs> is this a side hustle for you or are you all in on Grillo Protein? This is my main thing at the moment, you know. This is my life, I would say, at the moment. It's all about crickets. I'm slowly switching from my current job as a chef and um, just migrating to this whole new thing where I, my job is to basically inspire people to eat bugs. It's cool. And would I uh, sprinkle this on a salad? Would I have it in a smoothie? Is it something that I would incorporate into a stir fry? Like what's the, as a yeah. chef, what have you seen as being probably the more interesting and or effective ways for me to utilize this protein. Yeah, I think uh, for for our products at the moment, the easiest way, the easiest way would be um, to add into smoothies, especially with the cacao and the superfood green. But uh, we also add into anything, for example, cakes, muffins, breads, pancakes, waffles, um, curries. We've even been doing cricket curry. Uh, we had, uh, the other day we came across a product from some guys that are doing it in Brisbane. And it was uh, a packet, package of whole crickets seasoned with paprika. And it was amazing to go with the beer. I loved it. Yeah. Yum. And yeah, that I actually, it, it's a funny one, you know, um, I actually come from a background where I used to, growing up, eat a lot of Brazilian barbecue, which you guys probably heard of it. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, and the biggest question I get from my mates now that I'm not eating meat is when I'm going to cook a whole cricket rib in the barbie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it wouldn't take long to roast one now, would it? No, I would probably need a, a million crickets to feed them all. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Throw That's another classic. cricket T-bone on the barbie. Well, mate, we, um, we have been following this journey. We also spoke to uh, a lady who spoke very highly of the product and spoke very highly of Grillo Protein, and that was uh, Pip Taylor who loved the product and introduced us. Um, it was on the show just last week. So, mate, it's been, um, it's been really interesting talking to you. We can't wait to try it. And for anybody listening, once again, Robbo and I aren't associated with this. We are just absolutely curious, fascinated. Fascinated is the word, uh, yeah. Yeah, by, by nice. what you're doing. And I think because of some of the different sources that I've heard speak about crickets as a protein source and as a health food source, there seems to be a lot of momentum behind it and a lot of science behind it now that it actually is a thing. So, um, mate, as much as it might be a battle for you, it sounds like this is, uh, this is a winner at some point down the track. Yeah, I believe so. Um, you know, from uh, talking to other people, especially in America, where it, it became huge, there's lots of uh, companies doing the protein bars, the powders, the pasta, there's bolognese sauce made out of crickets. We, we do have a project coming up, which will be a protein bar. And uh, that's, that should be out around February. We're already working on it which I believe will be a much easier way of uh, getting people to try crickets inside a chocolate protein bar. So the powder in the, in the protein bar, or are we talking whole crickets in the protein bar? Uh, powder, yeah. Just the powder, it, it's a bit easier to, to work with. Um, we do like the, the whole crickets ourselves, but uh, I think 
some people might be a little bit afraid if they see the eyes and the and the legs of the crickets <laughs> on what they're eating. Just some of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a bit of a, a groundswell against the Easter bunny in Australia, so maybe we could have Easter crickets. Yeah, or just crickets. get crickets into instead of Santa Claus. That would be there you go. good. Yeah, leave some crickets <laughs> out for Santa Claus and his reindeer. Yeah, but you know, it's it's a it's a great challenge. You know, like a much much more excited now that I have a project with something totally new, trying to inspire people to eat this new protein that is actually not just doing good for people, but also for the planet, you know, just uh, with the whole thing going on about global warming and livestock and like, especially being a chef, I see that the meat that we are eating these days, it's, it's not the same meat that our grandparents we're, we're eating back in the day, you know, and it's all about profit and making money and, and making a chicken grow in uh, 30 days and then you slaughter and you give to your kids and, and no one is really worried uh, about connecting with food anymore. It's just about making money and we would like to change that a bit, you know, and and inspire, like I said, people to to eat something because it's good for them, but also something that is not destroying the, the whole planet. Look, this is a – it started as a side hustle and yeah. it's still in its first – essentially its first year. Yeah. Looking back now through that journey, what's been the biggest lesson or takeout for you? So if somebody else is sitting there, has an idea for a new category – in 2017, wants to get after it with a new idea. What's the biggest learning that you would pass on of what you've been through? I think the biggest thing that I learned is not to give up because um, a lot of people will try to push you back or say that this is not going to work and and this is not a good idea. Everyone, in our case, they say it's meat and they're not going to give up. But, you know, I think people, they just have to believe on what they're doing and and just keep moving forward, you know. It's, I think it's the, the main thing to find their own module, like you guys said. Well, this has been awesome, and it's, I, I've got to say, up front, Rob and I have been really looking forward to catching up with you because this topic, this product, really has captured our imagination with, with what it is and how it can benefit our health um, and help get our mojo working. So, mate, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. It's it's been it's been really great. Oh, thank you, guys. I uh, really appreciate that. And also, thanks to Pip from for connecting us. You know, it's it's very hard, especially um, now. I'm Australian citizen, but you know, coming from another country and to start to tell all the Australians that eating crickets is the future for them. It's it's very challenging and and hard to get it going without meeting great people like we've been doing for the whole way you know it's it's actually fascinating how much people are getting interested on like pip taylor for example she's seems to be just in love with crickets and i can see that she's eating them and her kids and and she's also motivating other people like you guys and and hopefully some more people here to this show and we'll want to jump on board and and keep moving it's for us it's not just about growing our business but it's about creating this new market and and inspiring other people to create their own cricket business and and doing other things not just bars or pasta or just anything really it's possible you know it'll be a time thing for you that there is enough groundswell from the biohackers um there's enough being written about 
plant-based, whether it be vegetarian, vegan, wild diets. I mean, there's enough now as a groundswell with the, I guess, the leading-edge nutritionists, the biohackers. Yep. It's just a matter of time before some of the commercial side of it catches up with it. Yeah. So that's why we were so looking forward to talking to you because, I mean, it's there is there is definitely a groundswell. I've, I've heard about it before, but this is going back probably two, two, three years, four years ago. But to find somebody in Australia with such a cool accent doing it as well, oh, that's, that's right. That's, that's gold. <laughs> and it, it probably leads me to something which, you know, I've always wanted to say on radio, which is there's nothing like a good Brazilian Oh, nice. we all love a Brazilian. That's great to hear. We all love a Brazilian. I, I haven't heard that many times before. Yeah. Before we let you go, uh, Lucas, if people are as curious as we are about this product, where would you send them to get a hold of some Grillo protein? I think the the, the best uh, point for them to find more information and actually get, get the Grillo protein is through our website, which is grilloprotein.com.au. Uh, there are a few shops that are selling in Sydney and uh, also in uh, Byron Bay, but for us, it's still mostly online uh, where you can get it. But we are looking for distributors. We are looking for other uh, customers. So hopefully soon this will be spread all over Australia and everyone will be able to just go to their local grocery shop and get their cricket powder. Good on you, mate. Thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, cheers, man. Oh, thank you, guys. And uh, next time you are in Byron, please uh, let us know and come and uh, stay with us. We have a Airbnb room here. You guys can stay for free and we'll go for a surf and eat crickets all day. Surfing, crickets, chef, I'm there. <laughs> all over it. Byron Bay, that's it. Byron that's Bay, what all, life's all, about. all over it. Yeah, don't, don't, Gary and I will be on your doorstep tomorrow morning, mate. What time do you want? <laughs> it's about good. nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Just give me a bus. I'll be here. What a beauty! What a catch! The Mojo Radio Show. Since that interview, Lucas has come good with his promise and supplied a few samples of his products. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and and I've been uh, I've been sticking some in my smoothies of a morning. I made a bolognese a couple of weeks ago and stuck some in there, which the kids devoured without even realizing that there was anything different to my normal recipe. I mean, <laughs> that might say a lot for my yeah, recipe, that's but you're saying know. a lot, yeah. <laughs> But I love it, and it's really showing in the way the kids are responding that, you know, they're not even knowing it's there, and yet I know all the good that it's doing for them. So um, get out there and find your Grillo Cricket Powder, folks. We'll put a link to the Grillo Protein website into the show notes. You can just click through and have a bit of a look at it. And once again, Robbo and I aren't associated with these products. We just find it fascinating, particularly if you're in nutrition, you want to do the right thing by yourself as a form of protein – uh, I think it's very, very worthwhile, and uh, I'm not sure of the taste yet, but Robbo gives it a bit of a tick, so uh, have a go. Uh, now, we have a new segment on the show. When I say we just made it up last week, actually. But <laughs> As we do with all our segments. Yeah, and it ties back to uh, at the head of the show, we talk about Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley and Peter Chris and the team at KISS, one of the great rock bands of the last couple of decades, and... It was Paul Stanley's birthday and the boys from the Dead Daisies sent us a note saying it was Paul Stanley's birthday. We sent him a birthday wish and we thought, actually, it's probably not bad. He's, he's pretty well known for the song Shout It Out Loud. Shout it, shout it, shout it out loud. And we thought there are a lot of people out there that don't get a lot of credit 
and part of our job over the last year or so since we probably interviewed Tate Fletcher on the Mojo Radio Show for the start of Rocktober. And he talked a lot about being of service and it gelled with us, didn't it, Robbo? Like it really made a difference in our minds to, we're not just putting out a show, but we really are endeavouring to be of service to the community. Mm, indeed. That was uh, the whole premise of this show when we started, wasn't it? Yeah, so we thought, well, if there, if there are people out there doing wonderful work, they're not being acknowledged, the least we could do would be to acknowledge them and send out a shout out and then play them a song. And this week we are focusing on teachers. Yes, back to school here in Australia. Bye-bye, little ones. <laughs> and uh, the reason that we we thought teachers was so significant is this seems to be, according to the media, particularly here in Australia, and, and I suspect in many parts of the world, there's a lot of media attention now on teachers I know quite a few young teachers and they have a lot of pressure on them. And although people think at Christmas time they have six or seven weeks of holiday, they actually don't. I mean, they go back weeks before the children. They finish a week after the children. And they're so into it. They want to be there. They want to have an impact on these kids. But it just seems that the teachers are getting more and more pressure on them because parents aren't doing their bit at home. And... It just seems that right now these guys are really working very, very hard. They're passionate for what they do. But they have such an impact on a child's life, their values, the grit, the resilience, the determination they have. And many of us can remember that one teacher, that just that one teacher who had a significant impact on our lives because they believed in us. Guy or girl, young or old, we've all got someone who believed in us that helped us build backbone, a bit of resilience, a bit of belief in ourselves. We helped help find our passion. So uh, I think teachers are unsung heroes. They work very hard. They're doing it not for the money. They're doing it for the cause. And uh, we want to send a shout-out to them, mate, don't we? I think we do. I think we do indeed because we're feeling a little hot for them, right? Yeah, what song you got racked up for us today? Oh, look, I think we've got to go back to uh, Van Halen's 1984 and I think it's got to be hot for teacher, doesn't it? We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.